life is not predictable. I mean, there's one point in the book where Stella says the, the Walt Whitman line that we all contain multitudes. And I think it's true that we can change who we are with effort and we can change who we are to the betterment. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Caroline Levitt has one of this summer's most anticipated novels. She is also a Real Fiction program favorite guest who is back to discuss her new book. In our summer reading series, we've had debut novelists and veteran authors on the program to talk about the research that went into the story development and the real and imaginary forces that fuel writing. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your preferred podcast platforms. I'll be back in a moment with Caroline Levitt. My guest today is best-selling author Caroline Levitt. Her latest novel, With or Without You, will be published by Algonquin in August. This is a story about love, tragedy, and transformation. An incredibly well-timed book, as so many of us are changing and looking at the world a bit differently. Caroline Levitt was one of the first real fiction guests. I am delighted she has returned to discuss her latest work. Caroline, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. I love what you do on this show. I would love to know something about what inspired this story in which a main character, who is Stella, falls into a coma. What I've always loved about your novels is the research and how you tap into um, experts to kind of frame up some of the medical um, and psychological background. So what can you tell us about this story? Well, this story was actually 20 years in the making. Um, I, excuse me, I actually was in a coma myself. Uh, shortly after the birth of my son, I had this very rare bleeding disorder and the hospital was mystified. They had no idea what was wrong with me. So they put me in a medical coma for three weeks and they gave me memory blockers so I wouldn't remember any of the procedures. And nobody really expected me to survive, but I did. And when I came out, my mind was blank of what had happened to me. And I kept asking my friends, my family, my husband, what what went on? And everybody was so traumatized, nobody would tell me. So I began to have these post-traumatic triggers where I'd go shopping and I'd see like a packaged soup and I'd break out into a sweat. And my husband would say, oh, well, that was the only thing you would eat when you came out of coma. Or I'd see a certain color that were the colors of the hospital curtains, and I would get a panic attack. So I went to talk to a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist, and he said, you know what, you need to write about this because it's like hypnosis. When you tell somebody under hypnosis, a match is being held to your arm, their skin will blister. The brain doesn't know the difference. So I wrote this novel called Coming Back to Me, which was about a woman like me who was in a 
coma, couldn't remember anything, and it didn't really help that much. Hmm. And I thought, oh, why is this? And then, like, years passed, and I was still having these triggers, and I was afraid to go to sleep. Then all of a sudden, I realized, why don't I write a novel about a woman in a coma who was unlike me, who remembers everything, who's aware of everything. So I happen to have a, I mean, I'm really, really interested in science. And my go-to person is this guy named Joseph Clark at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati, who does neurological research. And I called him up and I said, you know, I'm I want to write about somebody who's, you know, involved in coma and I need to do a whole lot of research. And we had these amazing conversations. And one of the things he led me to, which sort of broke open the novel, is that they don't really know what happens to your brain in coma. They know some things, but not everything. And there's this one amazing thing that actually can happen where your neurons can start to fire in a different way and you can become a totally different personality. And you can actually wake with these amazing capabilities you've never had before. And they don't really know why this is so, but I just thought that that was incredible. And I wanted to explore that. So I started to research more about it. And I found one woman woke up and she suddenly was speaking fluent Mandarin and she quit her job as a school teacher and moved to China to be a translator. Another guy woke up and he couldn't find middle C on the piano and all of a sudden he was a virtuosa on the piano and he began filling concert halls. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, that's something I have to write about. That is astonishing. First of all, I had <laughs> no idea that you had personally experienced a coma. Yeah. Because I wanted to ask you about the character of Stella. There's, there is a point in the story in which you write in her point of view while she is in the coma. So how, how did you kind of get into the frame of mind to write those chapters when she was not completely cognitively aware of what was going on? Or maybe she was. How did you navigate that? Yeah, the answer is, I don't know and I do know. I was so deeply into her character. I just I just let her talk and tell me. And the other thing is I do remember when they first brought me out of the coma I was still on really, really heavy doses of morphine, and I really didn't know everything that was going on. And it was terrifying for me in a way because, first of all, everything was in black and white. And second of all, I thought that I was, I actually thought that I was in a different reality, like in a TV show. I could hear a laugh track and I thought I was in this high-rise building and that there were other players there. And the, every once in a while, I would look up at the wall and I would see something real. My husband had made this big poster of our son, Max. And underneath, he had written, Get Well, Mommy, We Miss You. And I remember thinking, Get Well? What is, what is, I have to get mm. out of here and I don't know what is going on. So there was always that kind of for a very long time until they lowered the morphine, there was always that where I was moving in and out of reality and I would know some things and other things I would just sense and smells had colors to them and colors had smells to them. And there was just this very weird sense of I'm someone different and I'm in some place different, and I don't know what to do about it. And that's where some of that came from. You mentioned that you started to um, 
kind of see things differently and think about your real life and wonder what was going on. And I mentioned in the introduction that I found it really, wow, riveting and timely to read this during COVID because like your main characters, Stella and Simon, they they can't help but experience a shift in their lives. And I think that's something that we're going through right now in a, in a different way. But I'd love to know what what would you like readers to think about in terms of a crisis like this and a life transformation? I always talk about that people who have had major things happen in their lives, and that includes all of us right now, there definitely is a shift in our in our brain neurons and in our life. And I sort of feel like you you can either ignore it as as a lot of people are doing now with COVID, saying it's it's not true, I'm not gonna wear a mask. Or you can realize that there's something else going on in life that in our daily life we often don't pay attention to, and it absolutely changes you. Um, And you can choose how you want to be changed. I've had a variety of major things happen to me which weren't so wonderful. (laughs) And they actually, when I think about it now, I think they actually changed me for the better, even though at the time they were horrific things. I had, when I was very young, I had a fiancé dropped dead in my arms of a heart issue nobody knew he had. And it totally derailed me for a long time. And it made me feel that everything was so different. But at the same time, it made me feel how precious it is when you love somebody and when somebody loves you and how we should honor that in a deeper way. And then, of course, later when I got sick after the coma, when I finally, it took me about five years to get totally well. And during that time, I you know, I lost my hair and I was all bloated out from medications and my skin turned gray. And it changed me to realize that, you know what, I really want my life to be one of kindness and helping people and serving them and really paying attention to what matters in life. And I think it's the same thing with COVID. It's really easy if you're if you're if you're healthy now and the worst thing that's happening to you is you're just being sequestered in your apartment. I think it's important to realize that there's a whole lot of suffering going on and we owe it to everybody to be as kind as we can, to reach out as much as we can and to realize that Life is not predictable. I mean, there's one point in the book where Stella says the the Walt Whitman line that we all contain multitudes. And I think it's true that we can change who we are with effort and we can change who we are to the betterment. And we can also have, you know, a sense of purpose and even a wonder in life. I think that when when this is over, and hopefully it will be over, that the world will have changed for the better. That right now this is like a scouring, but maybe afterwards it will be better if we all can sort of band together and make it so. I think one of the reasons that this book is so well rounded and fully realized is that what we get to see through these characters is equally what it's like to experience illness, and what it's like to be the caregiver. And you just described being on both sides of that struggle. So 
this is just such a difficult time for the caregivers. Oh, yeah. Is that something that you wanted the reader to kind of glean from this novel? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because illness, illness is like being in a foreign country where nobody speaks the language. Right. And you don't know the customs. And it's worse somehow for the caregivers. I mean, my husband would not, the first time my husband talked about the coma was when COVID started. And he said this thing to me where he's, he said, you know, I've never felt this. The only other time I felt dread like this was when you were in the coma. And it sort of shocked me because he would never oh, talk wow. about it before. And I got him to talk a little bit more about it. And I remember, too, when I tried to get my mom to talk about it. And as she was talking about it, she got so upset that I saw her face change. And she literally looked like she was a thousand years old. And I made the decision to stop asking her because it was so painful for her. And I realized that in a way it's it's worse for the caregivers because when I was in the coma, I was so focused on you know getting out of it and getting well and what was gonna happen to me. But I think like for Jeff, my husband, and for everybody else, there's this terror and this helplessness because you don't know what to do. I mean, you don't know how to handle it. I remember they were going to do this one horrible test on me and I really didn't want them to do it. And I, it was after I woke up and I asked Jeff if he would stay with me. And I knew it was going to be bad because they had four doctors come in, five nurses. And when they started to hold me down, I thought this is going to be really bad. And I asked Jeff, please just stay. I need somebody to be there. And while they were doing the test, which was absolutely horrible, I looked up again and I saw Jeff and he was freaking out and panicking. And for a moment I had this almost this thought of wonder, like, oh, I should have I should not have had him be here because there's nothing he can do and this is terrible for him. And it's exhausting for caregivers. And I think in a way now with COVID, we're all sort of caregivers because we're all worried about the ones we love. Um, I mean, anytime Jeff coughs, I get really anxious because I don't know what to do and I want to do something. And you have to be calm because you can't make the person panic. That is such a, a powerful story. And I love that you made Stella a nurse because in the story, that is her profession. Yep. She is she has a uh, a career in caregiving. So when she becomes ill, then her rock band boyfriend, Simon, who I don't think in the beginning of the story, we would necessarily characterize him no. as a natural <laughs> caregiver. No, no, and no. so it really flips and the twist is um, just uh, incredible to read about. I, I'd love to know uh, a little bit about how the theme of fame connects in this story, because Simon is somebody who is ready to go to LA for um, a big break. There's an opportunity waiting for him just before Stella has her medical crisis. What fascinates you about the quest for fame? And what about when fame happens to a person when they are not seeking it? Well, you know, when I first started in my career, I was extremely ambitious. I mean, I, I just really wanted fame. And my first novel was like a major success. That was sort of the flavor of the month. And I thought, oh, this is great. It's always going to be like this. And of course, it wasn't. Um, my second novel did okay. Then my publisher went out of business. And then I signed like with a big publisher and they didn't really 
do a lot of publicity and the book died. And then I signed with another big publisher and another three book deal and book after book just sort of died. So there I was writing my ninth novel and nobody knew who I was. And I wasn't getting reviews. I wasn't getting asked to do anything. I never went on tour. And I just constantly felt like I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. What am I going to do? And two interesting things happened. The first thing was that my ninth novel was rejected on contract by my publisher mm. as not being special. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, oh, well, what can I do to make it special? And there was a silence. And she said, well, we don't really think that you can. And I started to panic and I said, well, what if I write something else? Would you look at it? And she said, no, we really don't think that you can. So Hmm. I was just sort of panicked. And of course I got hysterical. I thought, well, there it is. Ninth novel. No one knows who I am. No sales, literally no sales whatsoever. Um, Total failure with a capital F. I called on my friends crying saying, you know, I'm just going to write for myself now. And one of my friends said, Look, I have this editor at Algonquin, Andra Miller, and she's really great. And let me tell her about your story. And I said, fine, but nothing's going to happen. So she told Andra, and Andra called me up. And as I was talking to her, I realized this woman is interested in me. And I stopped her. I said, you know, I I have to tell you the truth because I'm an honest person. I don't sell books. This is my ninth novel. I've barely sold enough books to buy groceries. And she sort of laughed and she said, well, all that is going to change. So they bought the book, and Algonquin made that book a New York Times bestseller its first week out. And all of a sudden, it went into six printings, and I had all this success that I had never had before. And suddenly, I was everywhere, and I began to feel you know what, this is what I wanted for 20 years. And now that I have it, I realize how much of it is based on luck and timing. And it's not what I thought it would be. So that's the first part of it. The second part is my second book that I did for Algonquin. And this actually happens, um, you know, sort of immediately afterwards. It came out and it wasn't doing as well as the first. And I can remember sitting at the Tucson Book Festival, and I was with a friend of mine, and I was just sobbing, 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 saying, here it comes again, I'm going to be a failure again. And she was just saying, you know what, that's based on your family, because I grew up in a family where, you know, nothing I ever did was good, so being famous was sort of getting love. And when I went home after that, I got sick. I got ill with this sort of mysterious illness where I couldn't breathe and nobody sort of knew what it was. And I was going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And then all of a sudden, this second book made the New York Times bestseller list. And I Mm. thought, this is really (laughs) strange for this to happen while I'm sick. And I was much more interested in getting well than doing this. And I finally found a doctor who knew what it was. And it was sort of like, it was this weird thing where it was a spasm in my vocal cords and it was exacerbated by anxiety. And they said, you know, you really have to go talk to somebody to handle your anxiety. So I went to talk to somebody about my anxiety. And while we were talking, my breathing started to get better. I mean, it still was a physical thing, but obviously it was also anxiety. And as we were talking, I came to realize that so much of it had to do with who I thought I was. And I began to realize that I'm not, 
I'm not my success. You know, it's really nice to have people read you and it's wonderful to get reviews and to be on the New York Times bestseller list is great. But I've come to the conclusion now that that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is just to do the writing, to get lost in the work and to do the best that I can. And hopefully my work will change some people. And if it doesn't, I have very many other wonderful and beautiful things in my life. And that's what's important to me. And I wanted to write about that because so many people, you know, they... They pick their self-worth on whether they're famous or not. And that's not what is important in life. You know, this is all a balancing act. Everything that's happening right now is a balancing act with pre-publication and then working on your next novel. So how are you balancing all of this? And can you share anything about what you're working on next? I'm I'm not balancing it really well. I write myself a lot of post-its. There's a lot of stuff I have to, I have a lot of balls that are in the air. And I've told myself that I start work at like eight o'clock in the morning. And then by the time it's five o'clock, I say, okay, that's enough. Also, I keep telling myself, it's not going to be like this forever. I told myself that come October 1st, most of the book publicity will have died down. And that's when I'm going to start back on my new, my next new novel, which I already sold. Actually, I sold it on the basis of 70 pages and an outline to Chuck Adams, who's my wonderful editor at the wonderful Algonquin books. And it's kind of interesting because it, it's, it's, it's right now it's called days of wonder and it's about these two kids boy and a girl and when they were 15 they may or may not have attempted to commit this murder of the boy's father they don't really it's very shadowy they don't know they were like drunk and drugs and all this kind of stuff and because one of them the boy's father is very prominent he doesn't go to prison for it but the girl who's the daughter of this single mom working mom who has some dubious stuff going on she does she goes to prison she discovers she's pregnant and because her sentence is 20 years and she's only 15 they convince her to give up her child which she does however new evidence comes out and then she's she's early released from prison after six years so the book starts when she's early released she's in her 20s and she's looking for two things and one of them is she's looking for the boyfriend to find out did he give her up and if so why and also she's desperate to find out what really happened that night and she's also desperate to find her child Mm. and the book came about because I was one of my friends kept telling me about a friend of hers and I met this woman and I did love her and I thought what a wonderful woman I really love her she's great so after a year of knowing her my friend who introduced us said look um I need to tell you something about this person and she said it's okay for me to tell you she said when she was 15 she committed a murder and she went to prison for it. Wow. She doesn't want to talk about it. She feels like she's lived a life that, and living her life is a way of forgiveness. And a lot of times when she tells people, they back away. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting. So I started doing the research stuff. 
And I have a friend in Massachusetts who runs this program, this prison program for women on parole or probation. And part of what they have to do in the program is they have to read a book and they have to talk about it. And she said, would you like to come and meet these women? And you can meet the parole officers and the probation officers. And I said, oh my God, absolutely. So I went there a few times. And one time I did it on Zoom and it was the most extraordinary experience I've ever had. All of the, there were like about 20 women there and they were initially very, very suspicious of me. And they didn't start to warm to me until I started telling them mistakes that I had made in my life. Mm -hmm. And they liked that. They liked it when I said they didn't know how to drive. And I just was really honest with them again and said, look, I want to, I want to get this right. And I want to honor your experiences. And if any of you want to talk to me, that would be wonderful. And if you don't, I totally understand. The majority of them also had that feeling of, look, I, I made a mistake and I did my time and I have such hope for the future and people are making it harder for me to integrate by how they're perceiving me. And I wanted to write about that a lot because, you know, in America, we always say, oh, it's second chances and we love someone when they redeem themselves. But it's not always true, especially for women. And so that's what I want to write about. But it sounds like you're giving a voice to some women who maybe aren't being seen. Yes. And this is so this is going to be a real window into... Uh, a slice of life, a world that we likely haven't seen much of. I'll just remind listeners that uh, my guest today again is Caroline Levitt. Her forthcoming novel, With or Without You, is due out in August from Algonquin. Caroline, I can't thank you enough for coming back to the program. If listeners want to learn more about you, what is your best website? Oh, great. Well, first of all, they can always find me on Twitter at Levitt Novelist. Um, That's my watering hole. (laughs) I'm also on Facebook all the time. And my website is www.carolinelevitt.com. And thank you so much for having me on this program. I just, I loved these questions. They're really smart, intuitive questions. And I I love your show and I love you. Thank you. Just thank you so, so much. You are a fan favorite. So it's our delight. And And so again, the novel is With or Without You by Caroline Levitt. It is going to be published in August. So go get your copy. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you, Lori. listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.